This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about two big developments that have happened in Turkey. First of all, President Erdogan's political party, which has dominated Turkish politics for years now, unexpectedly lost important local elections in the two biggest cities in Turkey, Istanbul and Ankara. Secondly, relationships between Turkey and the United States have become increasingly tense, and Turkey is working more cooperatively with Russia, including a plan to purchase a Russian missile defense system. So we want to explore today what's going on, what this means for Turkey and for geopolitics more generally. And I have two terrific guests to help us understand those issues. First, I've got Stephen Cook, who is a senior fellow for Middle Eastern and African Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He also writes for Foreign Policy. And his latest book is False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East. Welcome, Stephen. Great to have you on Deep Dish. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Also joining us is Mustafa Akiol, who is a Turkish journalist and author who writes regularly for the Hurriyet Daily News in Turkey and also the New York Times. He's currently a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and his latest book is The Islamic Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims. Welcome, Mustafa. It's great to have you on Deep Dish as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me in the conversation. So I want to start with the local with these local elections, which surprised many people, including including uh, you who'd predicted them to go a a different way. Just to start off, what actually happened uh, in these elections? Well, uh, the Justice and Development Party, which has, as you pointed out, dominated Turkey since it came to power in 2002, uh, lost the major metropolitan areas of the country, including, it seems, Istanbul. Now, they've conceded nothing in Istanbul, and they are demanding a full recount of all the ballots, although there's an indication that they had lost that city by 14,000 votes. This is a, a fairly significant setback, even if the Justice and Development Party can claim that it still controls most towns and cities around the country. President Erdogan himself has said that if the party lost in Istanbul, it would be a clear indication that the party has lost its footing in Turkey. Um, There are uh, indications that um, the government is trying to uh, undermine these results and possibly uh, set the stage for a rerun of the elections. There's precedent for that in June 2015. Um, President Erdogan did not like the outcome of national elections and did everything possible to sabotage government coalition talks, uh, and in fact did, and elections were rerun, and uh, the outcome was more to the Justice and Development Party's favor. We'll just have to see whether that actually happens, Um, but there are some indications, including the government-friendly press, calling the outcome of the elections as they now stand an electoral coup. That's very strong language and and and, and relevant in Turkey because I, I think when I think about think about Turkey and Erdogan's position, I think about things like a, a recently consolidated and increased power around the presidency through a constitutional reform. Um, after the 2016 failed coup against him, he massively purged um, uh, uh, Turkish officials, including in the military, and also you know the once vibrant. Turkish media has been basically put under under government control. I, I think Turkey has arrested more journalists, if I'm not mistaken, than any other country in the world in the last three years. 
how come he's vulnerable then, given that that degree of political control? And there's really active measures to consolidate his control in the country. It's true. Uh, he has consolidated his personal power around what the Turks call the executive presidency. Turkey is the leading jailer of journalists in the world. Um, there has been an ongoing purge of the bureaucracy, of the military, of the police forces uh, going on actually even well before the failed coup in July 2016. But I think that the the, the real factor in these local elections was an economy that's in recession. Uh, 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 the unemployment rate is 25 percent. It's much higher among younger people. And inflation is about 20 percent. Um, people are really feeling it in their pocketbook. It's also important to recognize that the Justice and Development Party really has never garnered the support of more than almost half the population. Uh, its high watermark in uh, general elections is 49.95%. Erdogan, when he was elected president, won 52% of the vote. But there is a large, however, divided opposition to, uh, to Erdogan. And, and my sense is that um, with uh, the economic problems, the kinds of issues that Erdogan has run on in the past and ones that I personally believed would, would help him prevail uh, were not as uh, potent a message about uh, national identity, religious identity, fears about um, the country's fragmentation. Those did not work against overall avalanche of bad economic news. Mustafa, how do you view why this happened, why Erdogan was not keeping it together? Stephen just listed a number of factors. Um, Are there other things that you would add to that list, or do you think that's basically the story? I mean, this election uh, seems to be yet another level that the Turkish government, uh, President Erdogan and his ruling party, is jumping into. Um, I mean, what I've seen in Turkey in the past five, six years, and painfully I've watched this as someone who had better hopes about this party in the beginning, is that Erdogan and his party, the AKP, has been using a narrative that you would normally see in a one-party dictatorship, a political narrative. According to this political narrative, President Erdogan is the only patriotic leader And of course, those who ally with him are just fine too. But opposition is all made up, uh, traitors, uh, terrorist collaborators, dark powers that are serving evil conspiratorial powers out there that are against Turkey itself. So every election is a big patriotic war and, and so on and so forth. Now, this narrative doesn't fit into what we typically known as democracy, or at least liberal democracy. I think the fundamental assumption in liberal democracies is that there are different political parties, they have different ideas, different goals, some are right, some are wrong. You can totally say, well, the other side is totally bad and their ideas will really be very bad for our country. But you don't think that they are serving evil powers that are conspiring against the nation itself. You see that kind of narrative in one-party dictatorships because if one only one party or one political line is legitimate, why do you have why do you allow the other ones in the first place? Now, the the interesting thing is that this political narrative, which is now being pumped in Turkey by a big chunk of the media that President Erdogan controls, or directly or indirectly, uh, which is right in your face and in in uh, in 
in official media and everything and, and the government's propaganda resources. It is being, it's a one party ideology, but it's been acting in a multi-party system. Um, and so far this has worked to some extent because president Erdogan has been really winning elections uh, because Turkish society is very divided between uh, voting blocks and president Erdogan has consolidated the broad right-wing block, let's say religious conservatives and even some Turkish nationalists. And that has been enough to give him like the 51, 52, 53% that he typically needs to win an election. But in, in the past couple of years, uh, especially with the economic decline, there has been some erosion of this major block. And in this election, what we saw is that in the big cities, Ankara and Istanbul, uh, President Erdogan lost just a little bit of his traditional voters. And that was enough to tilt the balance in favor of the opposition. Uh, and the opposition did a better job of, you know, having better candidates that appeal to a broader segment of society and so on and so forth. So, so the outcome could be, oh, okay, this is a political movement that is using an authoritarian language and certainly using authoritarian means to crack down on opposition, like jailing journalists and, and dissidents and uh, the, the, the problems that Steve pointed out. But at the end, electoral democracy works. If they lose elections, they will go. So Turkey is an illiberal democracy, uh, but elections still matter. So that will be the outcome if these election results have worked. Now, in Ankara, they have worked. But in Istanbul, which is the biggest important citadel you know, that everybody wants to get and President Erdogan doesn't want to leave, now I think there are reasons to think that the elections will be renewed. At least that's what the government is pushing for right now. Uh, and the news coming from this morning uh, that, uh, there, that show that there's some pressure on the uh, electoral board that's going to decide upon this. And the, the government is trying to find some reason to make the elections invalid and push for new ones. So there may be renewed elections. So if that happens, I think even the minimum electoral democratic tradition that we had so far will be also questioned. So therefore, I worry that these elections can be taking Turkey to a higher level in authoritarianism. So that's very helpful. And I want to pick up on, on one of the things that you, that you pointed out there to try to gauge how significant this is. You know, obviously, the fact that someone from the uh, that, that people uh, from the non-ruling party one is significant. But but you pointed out, Mustafa, that the change in, if you look at the national vote, the change is really not very significant. You know, it's like uh, from 54 to 52 percent uh, in terms of the votes gotten by the, the um, uh, ruling parties. Does the fact that these couple of elections turned on a handful of votes, is there a possibility we're over-reading this as, as uh, a bigger sign of the erosion of uh, Erdogan's power than it should be taken as? Steve, I'll start with you on that. Well, I, I certainly think that um, Erdogan remains extraordinarily powerful. He has consolidated his power. He is safe uh, himself. And um, as you pointed out previously, there are is a virtual ministry of information in Turkey. Uh, Erdogan essentially controls 
uh, the narrative. Now, that narrative, the narrative that he has been uh, advancing over time, did not necessarily work this time. And as a result, uh, the government is looking for other means, perhaps through the judiciary, uh, to reverse an outcome that they don't like uh, in the elections. And and as I said before, I think Mustafa's warning that, you know, uh, Turkey's uh, democracy, however impaired or illiberal democracy, will is being tested in this episode. But I'll point out once again that in 2015, um, the Justice and Development Party and President Erdogan did not like uh, an outcome in, uh, of an election and, and was able to reverse it. Uh, I think that they do have the power in their hands to do it. Um, there'll be. A, I think the question is whether there is a perception uh, within uh, the bureaucracy, among uh, the vote counters, that Erdogan has been weakened and the party has been weakened enough that they can stand the pressure or whether they will fall into line uh, with what the government is clearly trying to do in, in Istanbul. I should also point out that there is some speculation, and of course this is, the, this is all speculation, but that the, the, the party and the president is, is, are, are not happy with the outcome in Ankara, even though you know, it, it's pretty clear uh, that uh, the, the new Ankara mayor, Mansur Yavash, won. He actually won in 2014, but they fixed that election as well that he may be vulnerable to uh, moves to declare him uh, unfit for office for some legal reason or another. So although Turkey remains uh, a quasi-democratic or illiberal democratic system on paper, more and more it looks like a consolidated electoral autocracy. But this is a big test, whether and we'll be able to make that claim with more confidence if Erdogan is able to reverse the outcome of the elections uh, in in Istanbul, which seems to be the prime target right now, whether he's remains strong or not, uh, he's in a strong position, especially since there are no more elections in Turkey for another five years. So, Mustafa, I want to come back to you and talk about what this election and ask about what this election tells us about the strength of the opposition. One of the one of the comments that many observers have have made is that the you know for years now not only has Erdogan been successful in consolidating power in various ways but the opposition has had a very difficult time um, organizing itself to be a, a potent um, political force. How should we read this election? Um, in terms of whether or not there are signs of increasing mobilization or potential effectiveness of the opposition, taking into account the point you both have made that whether or not it's going to matter, whether or not we have democratic institutions in Turkey that can even reflect uh, these changes um, is an open question. But what have we learned something about the potential strength of uh, an opposing party in Turkey? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, I should, yes, agree with the fact that, I mean, President Erdogan is quite still strong, electorally strong as well. And, I mean, we should not forget that we're speaking about municipal elections here. He still has his own mandate, the presidential uh, mandate, which will go there until 2023. So he's four more years. And uh, still, he is by his party is still the first party in Turkey, which gets 45% of the votes. And I think a big chunk of that, at least 40% of is that, is like diehard Erdogan supporters. No matter what happens in Turkey, they will not think of an alternative. 
I mean, he has created this bond with a certain part of Turkey, like religious conservatives, more traditional people, which think before Erdogan, you know, they were the outcasts and uh, for good reasons, you know, they, they think like that. And Erdogan gave them power and dignity. They took their country back and he's making Turkey great again. So there are these great images which will not go away that easily. Um, but the thing is, ultimately, if you go for elections and if the elections are competitive, you have to win 50% plus one. And uh, now, with it, this, did, it, it didn't work in Ankara. It didn't work in Istanbul. And they, they clearly lost Ankara. So that's not contested right now. Uh, but now they're contesting Istanbul and somehow they want to reverse this. Now, what this means is that we have years ahead and Turkish economy is not doing well, especially with the potential uh, confrontation with U.S. and even NATO with because of Turkey's purchasing uh, Russian missiles. That will have an additional maybe impact on the Turkish economy. Now, those things will maybe further erode the pragmatic vote on top of the ideological vote that President Erdogan has been winning. So if in, in 2023, when we're going to elections, President Erdogan might think that, hmm, there is a chance that I might lose these elections. So now the question is, in Turkey, in people's minds, is that, hmm, in that case, will we, uh, will President Erdogan and his, his party will say, okay, if we lose elections, so that's life and opposition can come to power, so what can we do about it? Will they say that? Or will they use the arguments that we are seeing right now, the arguments like there are dark powers that infiltrated the ballots, so the opposition rigged the ballots, so the ballots are not trustable anymore. Will they come to that? So in that words, will Turkey lose electoral democracy, at least the trust in electoral democracy as well in the years ahead? Now, that will be, I think, a major question now. Uh, Steve is right to point out in 2015, the election was renewed again, but that happened still not by annulling the first election or declaring it as invalid after the first election in 2015 in June election, there was no, the government, there was no government formed and Erdogan made sure that, you know, there was no government formed. So constitutionally new elections were, uh, were required. And, and so, but this time, an election that has taken place, but everybody has saw, and the, I mean, and, and the opposition got more votes. If this is renewed, and in the renewable, if AKP gets the uh, shots, uh, I think few people will start to trust in the electoral process as well. And I think, yeah, that will take Turkey to a further, uh, darker, I think, uh, level in the in the course that. It's already is in the past couple of years, in the past five, six years, I should say. I'm here with Stephen Cook of the Council on Foreign Relations and Mustafa Akiol, uh, currently in residence at the Cato Institute. And I want to shift our conversation from domestic politics to the growing tensions in the relationship with the United States. Of course, uh, Turkey is a NATO ally and has been a NATO ally uh, for decades now. 
But increasingly, uh, there have been conflicts in the relationship uh, with the United States, as well as President Erdogan has been forging a closer relationship uh, to Russia. And just earlier this week, on April 8th, uh, President Erdogan actually was in Russia and met with uh, Russian President uh, Putin. One of the flashpoints currently in the relationship is the decision by Turkey to buy a Russian-made uh, to buy a Russian-made surface-to-air missile, the S-400. So, Stephen, if you could start off and just share with us what is the S-400 and, and what is involved in this controversy? Well, thanks. It's a, it's a complicated issue, and there are a long list of grievances between, uh, between the two countries. The S-400 is just one of them, and it's the most visible one right now. Because the United States in the last weeks has signaled to the Turkish government uh, that there will be grave consequences should uh, Turkey take delivery of the S-400. And that consequence is removing Turkey from the F-35 program. The F-35 is the most advanced warplane uh, that uh, the United States has ever developed. And it's developed in a, in a consortium of countries that actually includes Turkey. Um, I, I commend your listeners to an op-ed in the New York Times that was written by the chairs of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee, along with their ranking members, which lays out the case that Turkey cannot have, it can have the S-400 and it can have the F-35, but it can't have both. Uh, and indicating that if the Turks do go forward with the S-400 um, purchase, which they have said, over and over again. In fact, at the NATO's 70th anniversary meeting in Washington last week, uh, Foreign Minister Javasolo basically told his NATO allies to get over it, that Turkey was taking delivery of the S-400. And President Erdogan has also said that Turkey could source its weaponry from other places, including Turkey, uh, and that it was also going, and he reaffirmed that Turkey was going to go forward with the S-400 purchase. Um, that would mean that, one, the F-35 would not go to Turkey, and two, Turkey would be subject to sanctions by the U.S. government as for buying defense articles from uh, Russia. It would also mean, at a practical level, that Turkey would be isolated from certain things within NATO, meetings, exercises, uh, things along those lines. So, Mustafa, I just want to bring you in on, on how this issue plays, and I, I want to get to the broader, the other issues that are involved in this relationship and the, and the tension with the U.S. But the S-400 um, issue, Mustafa, how does this play politically within Turkey? Well, Turkey is, I think, right now in a moment of perfect storm. And that is a combination of internal drive towards authoritarianism and then in globally, uh, in, in global terms, a drive away from the Western alliance and a bit closer to Russia. Um, and these are happening sometimes through different dynamics, but they're not unrelated. I think it's fair to say that in the past uh, five, six years, President Erdogan has growingly found Putin as a better ally and a friend than most of the Western leaders. Uh, I agree. Yeah. And, and how so? That what has reasons. I, I mean, I Putin treats him thing. always nicely and politely. Uh, Putin never criticizes Turkey on things like jailing of journalists or you know, press freedom or other human rights issues. Putin wouldn't have a problem with those issues himself. Um, 
And the whole idea of this defiant leader who can stand up against the West and can rebuild his lost empire, I mean, that is a kind of spiel that you find in both leaders. And uh, in, in pro-Erdogan media, I mean, there have been writers who openly said Putin and Erdogan are the two great leaders, two brave, two great leaders who can stand up against Western colonists, colonialists and so on and so forth. So there's already like a kind of closeness. Plus, Turkey has found Putin to be an important key, key partner in dealing with issues in Syria. Putin was the first leader to call him after the failed coup and to say, you know, we're with you. And whereas Erdogan thinks that there are some, you know, Western elements uh, in the coup and so on and so forth. There are a lot of there are a lot of conspiracy theories in Turkey about the West, but there are no conspiracy theories about Russia. So I think all of these are coming together. And I think uh, the, so the S-400 issue has some technical technicalities behind it. But it is coming on top of an ideological scene like that. Uh, I should add that, I mean, in the interna- in the global sense, um, one thing that has made Turkey, and not just Erdogan, but actually the broader Turkey scene, including even opposition parties, quite suspicious of U.S. plans in the region uh, is the U.S. support for the Kurdish forces in Syria. These are not any Kurdish forces, but these are forces that are affiliated with the PKK, which is Turkey's main terrorist problem since 1980s. Uh, and and I think the U.S. has made a mistake of not taking care of Turkey's at least legitimate concerns on this issue. And that added to the fear that, oh, now U.S. is behind against our enemy, the PKK, so we should look for other friends outside. So let me... yeah. Yeah, Steve. Let, let, let me let me just add a, a, a couple of points here uh, for for clarification and to advance the advance the discussion. First of all, uh, I'm not aware, and I pay close attention to this, of the U.S. government ever actually condemning Turkey for being the leading jailer of journalists in the world uh, or condemning Turkey's human rights abuses. This has always been a thing that senior U.S. government officials have sought to sweep under the table because Turkey is so important to the United States. I think the problem that uh, Mustafa is articulating is that um, the Cold War ended a long time ago, and Turkey and the United States have very different interests, and they also have different values. So um, the S-400 is a manifestation of uh, a different worldview and countries that have different interests. I think that the Turkish government, uh, under the Justice and Development Party of President Erdogan, believes that an American-led order in the region uh, around Turkey constrains Turkish power and that Turkey should be a power in its own right. And that has led it to develop a closer relationship with Russia. It began as a pragmatic issue related to Syria, but has now uh, turned into something else. Uh, Turkey does not see Iran uh, as a challenge, but rather as an opportunity or at best a strategic competitor where the United States has uh, has sought to contain or even roll back uh, Iranian influence, whereas the Turks have facilitated and enabled uh, the Iranians to get around sanctions uh, at the time that uh, at, at the time the country was under a sanction. And of course, there is the, the issue of the YPG. I, I would remind folks that in 2014, when President Obama went looking for allies in the fight against uh, the Islamic State, uh, Turkey said that its priority was fighting Kurds, and that if the United States wanted to cooperate with Turkey in the fight against the Islamic State, Turkey had 
elements of the Free Syrian Army that could do it with the United States. The problem was from the perspective of the Pentagon that um, these were poorly trained and affiliated with extremist groups. So that our relationship with the YPG was a function of the fact that we didn't really have too many other options. And it has led to accusations on the part of Turkey that the United States is working with a terrorist organization. True. But counter accusations from the United States saying, but Turkey wants us to work with al-Qaeda affiliated groups to defeat uh, the Islamic State. There's also other issues that have uh, that have buffeted the relationship and led to, I think, a, a, a rather a, a rather serious deterioration in the overall uh, bilateral relationship. And that is, I think, Mustafa uh, hinted at it when he said that there are all kinds of conspiracy theories about responsibility for the failed coup. I think the Turkish government and the Turkish affiliated press has been very straightforward that they believe that there was either a CIA, a U.S. military, or other Americans involved in uh, in this coup d'etat in cooperation with Fethullah the Gülen, a former ally of the Justice and Development Party, to overthrow the Turkish government. That is to suggest and I think uh, it's fairly clear that people within the Turkish government believe the United States is interested in regime change in Turkey. Um, other issues include uh, another piece of legislation that was introduced just the other day in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which was which is to sanction uh, Turkish government officials involved in the detaining of Americans and American personnel. Are American employees of the U.S. Uh, of the U.S. Embassy. There are a number of Foreign Service nationals. These are Turks who work for the U.S. government who have been detained. There is the famous case of Pastor Andrew Brunson, uh, who was held for more than two years. There's at least twenty other Americans who are being held in Turkey on charges that um, uh, are believed to be uh, illegitimate charges. So I think this all of this reflects two countries that at one time were strategic allies in facing a common threat. And now 30 years later, that threat is gone and we've run out of potential common projects and the differences in interest and values are, are coming to the fore. Um, can I add something on that? I mean, I, I agree with the points that Steve raised, but here's my feeling. There are some legitimate concerns that Ankara had uh, regarding the U.S. policy in Syria. Uh, there are, I mean, I think, and there is, I think it's, there, there are legitimate reasons to believe that the Gulen followers in the military were the main element in the coup. So there are some real issues here, but these are exacerbated by the deeply conspiratorial worldview uh, of that is now dominant in Turkey. When it's one thing to say U.S. is not taking care of our concerns with the PKK and the people they support in Syria are PKK affiliated, so we should talk about this. That's one thing. The other one is to, is thing to say that well, since the Crusaders, the colonialists, and everything, these are evil powers that are attacking us. And so, once you start to see the world in those terms, it becomes difficult to talk about these issues. And I think maybe in the U.S. side, there might be conspiratorial views about that Erdogan is creating this whole alliance with Iran and anti anti uh, Western uh, so and so uh, like a front. It was, I think, more nuanced than all of that. The, the bottom line, though, is today, uh, Turkey is coming to a point that its alliance with the West, in, in terms of NATO, is 
becoming more and more questioned. And I know, for example, in Washington, there are people who look at this and who say, oh, yes, let's kick Turkey out of NATO. Well, that's not as easily said as done. There's no mechanism for that. But there are people who think that Turkey should be defined as totally a country out of the Western alliance. And I would think, well, that will probably make things only worse. Uh, Turkey is certainly going through turbulent times. The Erdogan era is really... uh, destroying a lot of institutions in Turkey and making Turkey's uh, relationship with the West questioned. But this era will end at some point. So it is better to try to minimize the damage. And when the Erdogan era ends, like Peronism in Argentina, it's like or Chavismo in Venezuela, uh, it is better to keep Turkey less harmed by what has happened and keeping Turkey still in the Western alliance. That includes NATO. That includes the Council of Europe. That includes whatever ties are there with the European Union. To preserve them is, I think, better them, uh, better to break them because then Turkey will totally go into a more Asiatic model. The, the underlying assumption, though, of that is, is, is the belief that Turkey and Turks want to remain in these. I certainly agree with you. There's no mechanism to throw Turkey out of, of NATO. And I think that these you know, periodic declarations that Turkey must be pushed out of NATO are, are rather silly. Um, but it strikes me that Turkey and Turkish leaders calculate their own interests and have their own agency, and that they have signaled over and over again that um, they are deeply ambivalent about um, the Western alliance, uh, and that they you know, don't necessarily want to have the strategic partnership that um, that U.S. officials would like to have with Turkey, except on Turkey's terms, which are things that, as I pointed out before, that the United States is going to do because they're not necessarily in the interests of the United States. Um, I think that there's far less, I think there's a lot of people in Washington, less people who are interested in the kind of conspiracy theories about Turkey and throwing Turkey out of NATO and and a Turkey-Iranian front. And there are many more people who would like to save the relationship between the U.S. and Turkey. Um, But there's folks like me who say, look, we need to see the reality of this and that structurally the world has changed and that while Turkey remains an important country, and of course we should have diplomatic relations with Turkey and that we should cooperate with Turkey where there are places that we we can cooperate, they cannot do a number of things that undermine American interests and American power in the region around it and expect to enjoy the fruits of a relationship like, for example, taking delivery of the F-35 or, or, or enjoying um, and unfettered trade with the United States or anything else that might, be on, that might be on the agenda. Well, what I would say against that would be only, or on top of that would be, well, Turkey is not just Erdogan. And we see that electorally, uh, President Erdogan controls 51 to 52 percent of the electorate. But that doesn't mean that the other 49 percent of the people are so in favor of the United States. I think 80 percent of the Turkish public believes that the United States was somehow involved in the failed coup. Well, Turks always believes in those things. They believe this about the 1980 coup as well, 1960 coup as well. But still... This didn't stop Turkey trying to become a member of the EU. The, the, the demand for EU is still high uh, in the, within the electorate. So I, my, uh, my bottom line would be to conclude that what, has, what Turkey has become in, the, in these last years of President Erdogan is Turkey forever. I think that would be wrong. I think this is an era of ideological zealotry and then overreaction to 
Kemalism, and but it is going through a different extreme. But Turkey might find its balance at, balance at the end, and to try to keep Turkey as what it was as much as what, what as much as we can in terms of its ties with the West is, I think, a kind of better way of uh, dealing with it rather than to totally Turkey troll into the arms of Russia and in, in, in that part of the world and that and that political imagination of the world. Again, I don't think anybody wants to see Turkey fall into the arms of Russia, but I think this is ultimately up to up to Turks. Just two two quick points on that. One, um, perhaps Mustafa, you know, or you can recall uh, better than me, but I don't remember the last time a Turkish official, whether it's from the ruling party or the opposition, defended the relationship with the United States. The, this, the second thing is I, I don't think we should overestimate the possibility that once Erdogan retires, passes away, or decides to, or, or suffers some electoral defeat, that Turkey will snap back to being what it was prior to the Justice and Development Party period. He's now been in power for 17 years and is set to be in power at least through 2023. That's had a profound impact on Turkish institutions. It's had a profound impact on Turkish people. Uh, If he serves just through 2023, there are people who will be coming of age politically who will have known nothing other than the Justice and Development Party and the the kind of rhetoric about the United States and the, the state of the relationship and the state of the relationship with the West more broadly is deeply corrosive to a worldview of people who've never experienced anything else. So I, I, I wish I could share your optimism that this is just a moment. It certainly is just a moment, but that, that this moment won't have an impact on Turkish politics and Turkish view of the United States and the West more broadly for years to come after this moment, I think, is perhaps a tad too optimistic. So I think this has been a fabulous discussion because what you've both done is clearly laid out um, two different views of where we are and what the likely future is going forward and therefore what the policy implications um, should be. So I want to close our discussion by asking you to do something more or less impossible, which is to predict the future a bit. And after the uh, these recent uh, municipal elections that, that are really the trigger for the show in many ways, uh, we know the danger of prediction. But I want each of you to look out, say, five years And where do you think things will stand in five years? Will Erdogan still be in power? Will Turkey still be on its current political trajectory in terms of domestic politics? And in terms of the geostrategic relationship with the United States, is Turkey still in NATO and is Turkey still a close um, U.S. ally? I'll let whoever wants to start uh, kick us off. Sure. Um, first of all, on just what Steve said, I mean, has Turkish leaders been positive about U.S. relationships lately? Well, actually, they were quite positive, not with the U.S. in general, but with President Trump. I mean, there was a love affair for President Trump, at least in his early uh, years uh, in, in, in 2016, because he was seen as a uh, as a man of the leader who defies the establishment, just like Erdogan himself. An establishment that has shielded Turkey from a lot of criticism. Over yes. It. I mean, actually, I would prefer that establishment to the alternative. <laughs> but, I mean, from a Turkish point of view, 
he was standing up to all the conspiratorial evil powers of the world, as, uh, global powers or whatever, as Erdogan himself does. So, so that that's an interesting just thing to add to the discussion. Maybe a little funny one. Um, how do I see in Turkey five years? Well, it's very hard to predict. But I wouldn't be surprised if President Erdogan is still ruling Turkey in five years. Well, he has a mandate to go until 2023. I wouldn't be surprised if he somehow wins those elections in 2003 again. I'm saying somehow here. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if President Erdogan um, turns out to be uh, the ruler of Turkey as long as he lives. Um, And after that, though, I would hope to be a post-Erdogan era where you can have uh, maybe some reconciliation, some balancing. Uh, Of course, how much Turkey will be transformed until then is a question that we will see. But here's the thing. Turkey is my country, and I want the best for it, and I'm hoping Turkey to survive this certainly poisonous authoritarian era with the minimum damage. And, uh, And for that, I think... Uh, one thing to understand is that President Erdogan is obviously authoritarian. He certainly has an understanding of democracy where the winner takes all, which doesn't have much room for free press or rule of law or independent judiciary. Uh, but he is pragmatic. So at the end of the day, he will have to think of Turkey's economy. At the end of the day, he can't totally toss all the relations with Western countries, especially Europe, Turkey's biggest market uh, and trading partner. So uh, he should be treated like maybe uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary is treated, not as someone who should be totally thrown away from all the institutions of the West, but someone who is certainly promoting an illiberal understanding of democracy and the West should use smart ways to uh, keep Turkey as much as possible within the framework framework of the free world. I guess I'm up to predict, um, which is hazardous. But I, I would agree. In well, Let me just say that, yes, Mustafa is correct. The Turkish leadership was very, very happy when Donald Trump was elected. But my point was I hadn't heard uh, a Turkish official or an opposition leader defend the strategic relationship with the United States as a benefit to Turkey. Um, that's all. They may have liked President Trump. They initially liked President Obama, ended up hating President Obama. But no one in recent memory has defended the the overall strategic partnership between the two countries. Now, as far as the next five years go, it strikes me, you know, Mustafa's right. He has a mandate to rule. And Erdogan is intent on continuing the transformation of Turkey that he began in 2002. Uh, He began that by pursuing a more consensus-based politics, but since arguably 2008 or so has pursued it through authoritarian means. And I think that the outcome of these elections and the relative weakness of the Justice and Development Party, and let me emphasize relative weakness of the Justice and Development Party, will convince him that he needs to pursue this transformation through authoritarian means rather than returning to some sort of consensus-based politics that he had initially uh, pursued. As far as the the relationship goes, it's already uh, quite a difficult one. But let me point out that the United States has difficult relations with a lot of its traditional allies. And I think that this is reflective of the fact that the post-World War II order is really coming to an end. And we don't know what's going to come next. And that 
the assumption that the post-World War II order would, would live on forever and that the set of relationships that the United States established with its allies during that period would, would remain forever, I think, is, uh, is naive. I think the United States has you know, a, a number of allies that it will always have. Turkey's not necessarily one of them. Um, so the relationship is quite naturally going to change. My hope would be that we could come to some sort of understanding that here in Washington and not a- a- exert a tremendous amount of time and effort to save a relationship uh, that served a particular function and that we find places where we can cooperate uh, with Turkey. Uh, but other places we're going to have to uh, oppose Turkey or, or, or work around it um, as we pursue, as the United States pursues its interests and as Turkey pursues uh, its interests. So Stephen Cook of the Council on Foreign Relations, Mustafa Akiol of the Cato Institute, where he's currently in residence. I want to thank you both for being on Deep Dish and really laying out uh, what's happening in Turkey and what's at stake and how to think about the relationship between Turkey and the United States. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for being on Deep Dish. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks for having me, too. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you can get each new episode as it comes out. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, If you could take a moment, tap the share button and send it to them as well, I'd really appreciate it. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask questions of our guests, follow up questions to what you heard today, or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. Our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.